Good day. I'm Martin Webb, and welcome to The Climate Report, broadcasting every second and fourth Thursday on KVMR-FM at 6.30 p.m. On today's show, we hear from a local retired minister who is also an environmental leader to talk about an upcoming day of national climate action and how our community will participate. Then we revisit a news piece we first reported on four months ago that is more relevant than ever, how a community's social connections can help it survive extreme weather and climate calamities, with locally-based mutual aid replacing government charity from out-of-town sources. Lastly, we close with a new study on the rapidly changing forests of the Sierra Nevada and how many of them are turning into what are called zombie forests. Please note, all climate reports are archived on the podcast page at kvmr.org. Let's begin with details on an upcoming National Day of Climate Action and Rallies on March 21st. The theme is called Banking on Our Future. Here is what's happening locally. This is Martin Webb with KVMR Evening News, and I'm joined with Sharon Delgado. She's a local retired United Methodist minister, author, and a founding director of Earth Justice Ministries. We sat down to talk about an upcoming day of climate action. Thanks for joining us, Sharon. Can you tell us about the event? Yes, thank you, Martin. Glad that you invited me. Yes, we're having an action on March 21st, and that is a Banking on Our Future campaign action. It's going to be at Brunswick and Sutton Way at that intersection from 3.30 to 5.30 p.m. This will be a national day of action. It'll be for whoever's concerned about climate change. It's going to be a climate demonstration to raise awareness of the link between our banking choices and climate change. And the other point of it is to challenge the big four banks to stop bankrolling the fossil fuel industry and causing climate change. These four banks are Bank of America, Chase, Wells Fargo, and Citibank. And they're right there near the corner where we'll be meeting. A lot of us try to be environmentally responsible here in Nevada County. We recycle, we um, try and reduce our carbon footprints in various ways. But what people don't always realize is that our banking choices can have a far greater impact on climate and on our carbon footprint than uh, even anything that we can do uh, on a personal level. And it's a systemic change to change our banks because it is something that we are going to be doing together as uh, an orchestrated uh, event. That's the campaign banking on our future. Um, the people who started this were uh, Bill McKibben, his new group, Third Act, which he started when he became 60 years old. And it's a group of elders. And that's the group that started this campaign. But it's really going to be an event for all ages. And now a lot of other groups have signed on. There's Green Faith, Sierra Club, 350.org, Climate Reality, Stop the Money Pipeline, the Hip Hop Chorus, and, and many, many other organizations. And I'll tell you who is um, sponsoring it locally. Earth Justice Ministries, Sierra Foothills Elders Climate Action, Nevada County Climate Action Now, and the Nevada County Sunrise Movement. We've all come together to 
get this um, action on March 21st at 3.30 at uh, Brunswick and Sutton to get that started. Yeah, it's fascinating that indeed you'll be at one of the corners where a lot of our local, well, not local banks, but banks that serve the local community are located. So that will be sending quite an interesting message. So what I'm hearing, though, is that for folks who, for whatever reason, might find that their schedule doesn't allow them to attend, you're trying to spread awareness that there's things to be done, even if you're not going to be there, that um, a big part of Climate action is not just perhaps what we do individually, but what other peoples do do on our behalf. And it's true that research shows that a lot of these major banks are still financing fossil fuel projects. And people might not realize that that's being done with their money if they're banking there. Is that sort yes. of the message you're sending? That's the message, yes. And they are still funding fossil fuel projects. And if you do that, you're creating infrastructure that will keep us locked into using those fossil fuels for decades because it's long-term infrastructure. And these are the top four banks in the world that invest in fossil fuels, but these top four are in the United States. Yeah. So you're inviting for this day of action, again, this is a national day of action, and you're helping spearhead our local um, participation in that. It's a two-hour event there at the corner, and people um, are encouraged to perhaps make their own signs and and at least just stand with the community that is there making a point about um, banking on our future. Is that right? Yes, but we are having a uh, banner-making gathering on uh, March 18th, And you can look at our uh, website or contact us for more information. You can contact us at dayofaction at earth-justice.org. Say that one more time. I've got a day of action. At earth-justice.org. Day of action at earth-justice.org. Yeah, and I want to say a little bit more about what we're, what our plans are for that day. Please do. Okay, thank you. Um, well, first of all, we're going to be at the um, intersections at whatever corners we take. And we'll be, there will be some songs, there will be banners, there will be signs that whatever anybody wants to bring. And then some people are going to take a little... Uh, procession and walk to the different banks. Bank of America, Wells Fargo, and Chase are the ones that are nearby. And some of those folks are planning to withdraw their, uh, close their accounts and uh, cut up their credit card uh, right then at that time. And we'll cheer when when they do. Uh, So people can do that if they like. If you want to participate in any way, feel free to just come and be there. Uh, and, and nobody needs to walk to any banks. And by the way, we will be talking to the bank managers in a, in a very respectful way. We Not all the bank managers and, and certainly not tellers even know that these banks are investing in our money in, in fossil fuels. So um, And so you can just attend. But if you really want to participate and start the process of changing banks, you can take the pledge and I, it's kind of in, inside, not very deep, but in the um, Third Act uh, website. So just go to Third, just Google Third Act, take the pledge. 
third act, take the pledge, and it'll just pop right up. And you just go to that site, you sign up, and the pledge is this. Let's see, where is it? Oh, I guess I don't have it with me. But the pledge is that we will uh, not, we will take our money out of those banks, or we will not invest in those banks if they don't stop funding fossil fuels and start funding clean energy projects. Yeah. So this is the Banking on Our Future National Day of Action, March 21st. Locally, it will be from 3.30 to 5.30 p.m. at the corner of Sutton and Brunswick, near the cluster of banks that you're actually talking about. And for more information, people can email dayofaction at earth-justice.org. There is also uh, a banner and uh, sign making on March 18th. Yes. Well, thanks for joining us. This has been Sharon Delgado, again, a local retired United Methodist minister, author, and a founding director of Earth Justice Ministries. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Martin. Let's start with rerunning an article that we read four months ago that was published on December 8th in The Guardian as part of their Covering Climate Now sharing the news with over 400 news desks around the world. This article is entitled, Why Knowing Your Neighbors Could Save You in the Next Climate Disaster. Across the U.S., communities are relying on mutual aid as a safeguard against extreme weather. When winter storm Uri hit Texas two years ago, In February 2021, bringing single-digit temperatures and sheets of snow to Dallas, Susanna Edith and a group of volunteers distributed lentil soup and winter gear to unhoused people in their community. Edith said, A lot of us had a sense of urgency and were called to action at that moment. We were out in the streets while the storm was happening. Edith is the founder of Lucha Dallas a community-based collective that coordinated with other mutual aid groups in North Texas to bring food, warm clothing, sleeping bags, and tent warmers to their unhoused neighbors. They even raised cash donations to pay for hotel rooms for those who could not access shelters. Like millions of Texans across the state at the time, Edith's own household was also without power and heat. The frigid temperatures, snow, and ice caused a catastrophic failure of the state's power grid. Within days, some 12 million residents lost access to safe drinking water. The disruptions disproportionately affected low-income communities and communities of color, and the consequences were deadly. The state's official death toll reached 246 people. But an analysis from BuzzFeed found that more than three times as many people likely died from the storm. Edith said that she and her neighbors felt abandoned by the local government. She said there's no other means of survival for us. If we're not looking out for each other and helping each other, giving each other a hand, no one else is going to do it. Across the country, people are increasingly relying on mutual aid, Cooperative assistance adherents describe it as solidarity, not charity, to get through climate-related disasters. The practice is nothing new, of course. Communities of color and other marginalized groups of people have 
long relied on mutual assistance amongst themselves when government services fell short. But now, many frontline communities on the climate crisis are taking up the practice as a way to become more resilient in the face of increasingly extreme weather. Communities where neighbors check in with each other and have someone to call during a crisis are actually better prepared to face climate emergencies. That's according to a Tufts University study published just this last September. Researchers conducted interviews in two Boston neighborhoods that are at risk for flooding and heat waves. They did this over the course of six months, and they found that the more connected people were with neighbors, church communities, and even their colleagues, the more likely they were to know about resources and services offered during extreme weather. According to the Reverend Vernon Walker, who is a co-author of the study, and he's the program director for a unique organization called Communities Responding to Extreme Weather, also known by the acronym CREW, which co-published the report. He said being socially isolated while trying to deal with an extreme weather event can be deadly, particularly for those who are more susceptible to dying from extreme weather. He referenced a study by the sociologist Eric Klinenberg on the 1995 Chicago heat wave that killed 739 people over five days. Klinenberg at the time found that social isolation contributed to the death toll. Reverend Walker, again, he's the program director for CREW, which stands for Communities Responding to Extreme Weather, says for CREW, it makes sense to help build social infrastructure in a community to increase the likelihood of people surviving during these extreme weather events. During a heat wave, for example, the social infrastructure might look like neighbors calling and checking in on the most vulnerable in their communities, often the elderly or disabled, and asking if they need a ride to a cooling center, he said. To that end, Crew hosts community workshops on topics like preparing for extreme heat and weather where volunteers hand out cooling kits with water and cooling patches. But most importantly, Vernon said, it's a way to bring people together. He said what we mean by social connectedness is allowing people to get to know each other that might not have known each other, and also fostering that spirit of collaboration. So when the storms come and the heat waves happen and the rain descends, people are looking out for each other. Walker's example is taking on growing urgency. This past summer, Boston experienced a record-breaking heat wave that dragged on for days. Well, for Matt Peterson, a Queens, New York-based documentary filmmaker, Superstorm Sandy that hit New York City revealed the importance of community in getting through a disaster. After Sandy struck the city and flooded much of the coastline, Peterson found himself volunteering with Occupy Sandy, delivering supplies to hard-hit neighborhoods. He said, you expect all these infrastructural logistics to just work in America, in New York City, and then they shut down. They don't work. It was a wake-up call. Two years later, he and a dozen friends founded Woodbine, 
It's considered an experimental hub for developing the practices, skills, and tools needed to build autonomy in a community. They organize a farm share, offer yoga classes, screen films, and host lectures on topics including universal health care and climate disinformation. Then, when the COVID pandemic struck, Woodbine and the surrounding working-class neighborhood called Ridgewood mobilized. Volunteers distributed food at the center five days a week. They made cloth masks and created flyers in English and Spanish with COVID-related resources and information. Peterson said we were able to meet hundreds or thousands of people in the neighborhood that circulated through our space and came to our activities and events, but it wasn't until COVID that there was really an opportunity to fully mobilize that network of all these people and to see how it could be applied in a very local neighborhood way. Now, the center's food pantry still stays open twice a week. And on Sundays, Peterson and his co-volunteers at Woodbine organize a donation-only dinner open to anyone in the neighborhood every Sunday. Peterson said a resilient neighborhood would have to be a neighborhood that knows each other, that knows who the people are, what their issues are, how to get in touch, how to communicate. He said the neighborhood network is in a better position if another disaster hits. Mutual aid is predicated on the understanding that everyone in a community has something to contribute, and everyone may need help at some point. Peterson said, we're not some special different tier of people that's just providing a service. We also are benefiting from all of the resources and energies and skills and networks that other people bring. We are seeing this type of community interconnectedness here in Nevada County as the code red emergency service alerts that go out remind people to please check on their neighbors and people in the community that may need assistance. Another topic that is relevant to us here in the Sierra Nevada region is how the changing climate is impacting our forests, making them move and disappear altogether. This week, an article was published in the New York Times. It was talking about brand new research that just came out of Stanford University last week, analyzing on a granular level how the forests are moving and being impacted. And they're now calling some of them zombie forests. This was published in the New York Times on March 6th. It's called Mapping California's Zombie Forests. A warming climate has left a fifth of the conifer forests that blanket California's Sierra Nevada stranded in habitats that no longer suit them. According to a study published just last week, by researchers at Stanford University. In these, quote, zombie forests, older, well-established trees, including ponderosa pines, Douglas firs, and sugar pines, still tower overhead. But few of their young trees have been able to take root because the climate has become too warm and dry for them to survive. Zombie forests are, quote, cheating death in a way, unquote, said Avery Hill, an ecologist and the study's lead author at Stanford. Mature trees are able to survive even after their local climate has shifted, but 
the species is not likely to grow back in these areas after any major disturbance like a catastrophic wildfire, logging event, or period of extreme drought. Instead, the study found the forest is more likely to be replaced by smaller, shrub-like vegetation that is already adapted to warmer, drier conditions. For their analysis, Dr. Hill and colleagues examined historical data going back more than eight decades. Comparing detailed survey data plotted by the U.S. Forest Service in the 1930s with more recent vegetation maps. They found that during that time period, essentially the last century, the Sierra Nevada's conifer forests had, on average, already shifted about 112 feet higher in elevation. That's uh, one way to think of it, is an 11-story building that the uh, conifers in Sierra Nevada have already moved up 11 stories in height. Now, while the trees themselves have moved 11 stories higher, unfortunately, the most suitable temperature range for the conifers had shifted even faster and higher, climbing upslope by about 600 feet or a 60-story building. So what they've shown is that the temperature range they want is 60 stories higher The trees can only move at a certain speed, and they've only been able to keep up at a pace of about 11 stories. The climate is fast outrunning them. This has left an estimated 11% of today's conifer forest in the Sierra Nevada actually now mismatched to its current climate conditions. An additional 8% is considered severely mismatched, according to the study, bringing that total to just about 20% of all of the Sierra Nevada forests are now in the wrong place and likely won't return. Global climate change has put pressure on many species of plants and animals to move to higher elevations or toward polar latitudes in order to stay in climate zones they've historically adapted to. Longer-lived species, however, like conifer trees that we enjoy in the Sierra Nevada, which can live for centuries, often find it harder to keep up with the velocity of climate change, according to Chris Field, the director of the Stanford Woods Institute for the Environment and senior author on the study. They can only move as fast as their seeds get dispersed. Warmer winters and drier summers can also embolden invasive insects and diseases to move northward, catching up to the forest that can't move fast enough, killing some native plants and trees. In Rhode Island, foresters there, and indeed across the country, have been trying ambitious experiments to deliberately move certain tree species northward in a process known as assisted migration. The study discovered that temperatures here in the Sierra Nevada have already warmed by an average of 1.2 degrees Celsius over the last century. A warming climate has exacerbated California's weather whiplash, experts say. Following years of drought, this year saw major storms that dumped record amounts of snow across the Sierras. The recent study ascribed climatic factors, including changes in precipitation and changes in temperature, as two major drivers of the shifts in suitable conifer habitats. But it also notes that wildfires and other disturbances, as well as our increasing human presence in formerly wild lands, 
have also played a role in the changing forests. Global warming is not the entire story, said John Keeley, a research scientist with the United States Geological Survey. He did not work on the study. But the role of historical forest management practices has also influences, influenced the changes in conifer forest distribution, he said, as it has helped fuel more destructive wildfires. As has been well reported, up until a century ago, throughout the entire history of the world and humanity, low-intensity fires that did not kill many large trees occurred regularly which meant tree seedlings could more easily reestablish themselves in those regions after the fire. However, in the last century, decades of aggressive wildfire suppression that began in the 20th century led to a buildup of vegetation in forests that was primed to burn. Once ignited, they often resulted in higher-intensity crown fires that could spread across a forest canopy from crown to crown, from treetop to treetop, and leave vast swaths of the landscape barren and arid, making it more difficult for young trees to take root. Indeed, we reported on this last fall when we did a five-part series on the brand new Sierra Nevada Climate Vulnerability Assessment, where they made clear that the trees are going to continue to disappear and be replaced by more arid shrubland. Americans, like myself, and many of you included, have also increasingly moved into the fire-prone foothills of the Sierra Nevada. Rapid development in areas known as the wildland-urban interface has increased wildfire risk. More recently, forest managers have begun using prescribed burns to preemptively thin out forests so that wildfires have less fuel to consume. But the changing climate is making intentional burns more complicated to carry out. The Stanford team also mapped where the conifer-dominated forests of the Sierra Nevada have already transitioned to landscapes dominated by other vegetation, like shrubs or flowering plants. They looked at where this shift has already happened between the 1930s and the 2010s. And when transitions like this happen, it can harm local and native species that are dependent on the forests that are leaving. In addition to helping local species, forests also play a critical role in regulating our water quality and sequestering carbon. So we risk losing an awful lot as they begin to leave. This new study, fortunately, can at least help forest managers and policymakers prioritize their already very limited resources said Winslow Hansen, an ecologist with the nonprofit Cary Institute of Ecosystem Studies, who did not contribute to the study. He said that that could mean, when you're looking at very limited budgets and where to put it and what to do with it, this mapping will show us exactly where we need to pay attention to the transitions that have already happened and where they will happen. This could mean conserving zombie forests that are stuck in abandoned and mismatched regions for as long as possible. Or it might be better to abandon the zombie forest and instead focus on directing resources to areas where the climate is still aligned with the appropriate vegetation. That's all for today's Climate Report, broadcasting and podcasting here on KVMR-FM and at kvmr.org every second and fourth Thursday at 6.30 p.m. 
I'm Martin Webb, and as always, today's show will be archived and posted to the KVMR's website podcast page for sharing or re-listening. For questions or comments, feel free to email climatereport at kvmr.org. 